Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for this wonderful day, for the wonderful people gathered here. We ask your blessing upon us as we study your holy word. Transform us deeper and deeper into your image and bless us in our life and in our ministry. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today, we're going to look at Mark 13, and we're going to be looking at Mark 13 as part of our study of the book of Daniel, because part of our work is not just to study Daniel, but to see how Daniel's legacy moved forward in the first century and beyond, to see how it influenced Jesus and his self-understanding and that of the early church. And so both today and next week, even though we won't be looking at Daniel, we'll be looking at some early Christian texts through the lens of the book of Daniel, because the book of Daniel was certainly in the backdrop of them being composed. And so this is the little apocalypse from the book of Mark, as it's often called. And I'll start with reading verses 1 through 13. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what large stones, what large buildings? Then Jesus asked him, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pains. As for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must be first proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. All right. So in the context of Mark's gospel, this is the final week of Jesus's life. And much of his ministry has taken place in Galilee, uh, on the hillside, by the lakes, amongst fishermen. But now he is entering Jerusalem. Um, it's the final week of his life. And what they do when they arrive, Jesus and his disciples, is that they go and look at the temple, the grand temple. Now, remember, the book of Daniel was written in response to the first temple being destroyed and the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, coming in and carrying people off into exile. And if one continues to read scripture, we know that under Persian rule, <laughs> the Israelites were allowed to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild that temple, this is talked about in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And one of the things that we know from that second temple uh, is that people both rejoiced when it was built, but they also wept. 
they wept because it didn't have the same glory as the previous temple. But nevertheless, the temple was a really, really big deal. Uh, and the second temple was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 AD. And so Jesus speaks these words, say 30 years before this second temple is destroyed, but the disciples are fascinated by it. They say, teacher, look at this amazing cathedral. Look at this amazing testament to God's glory. And what Jesus says is, actually, it also will be thrown down. And one of the things that we could ask a theological question would be who or what might we say is the true temple of God? Because the second temple was destroyed. It was never rebuilt. If you've been to Jerusalem, you'll see people will go to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. They'll visit the foundation of this temple that was destroyed. But the temple was never rebuilt. There wasn't a third temple. Jesus was right. It was thrown down. And so who or what is the true temple of God? And in the book of Matthew, um, Jesus says something very interesting. He says something greater than the temple is here. Uh, and so Jesus elevates himself above the temple. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says to the church, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And so when we think of the temple being that place where God dwells and where sacrifices are offered, one of the things the early Christians were asked to imagine is, well, if this temple is no longer a pile of stones in Jerusalem, what is that new place where sacrifices are offered and where God dwells? And it didn't take much for the early church to say, oh, that's us. We are the temple of God. We are that place where a living sacrifice is made in order to serve God. We are that place where God dwells. Um, that's a little bit of a tangent, but all of that is kind of in the backdrop of this temple being destroyed. But nevertheless, to go back to the story, the disciples, about a week before Jesus's death, they want to know, uh, when is this going to happen? And remember, the book of Daniel is actually very concerned with timelines. And so last week, we looked at Daniel chapter 12, and there's that verse that says, from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that desolates is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. That is very specific, right? They are counting down 1,290 days. And the disciples are asking, can we do that? When is all this going to happen? And essentially what Jesus says is, don't let anyone lead you astray. That nation will continue to rise against nation. Kingdom will continue to conquer kingdoms. And again, that is the whole point of the book of Daniel. Um, even though Babylon conquers Israel, Persia conquers Babylon. Greece conquers Persia. Syria conquers Greece. Rome conquers Syria. Um, nation rises against nation. We think back to Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and all of those dreams are about nation rising against nation. Um, and But what Jesus does here in verse 8 is frame this a little bit differently. He says, this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. All of a sudden, this is actually a very hopeful metaphor, right? Whenever a woman is about to give birth or is giving birth, uh, a very, very painful thing, but this pain 
precedes a child coming into the world, right? Birth itself is the most hopeful thing we know. It's, it's one of the things that causes us great joy. And so part of what Jesus is saying is, you know, nation will rise against nation, but there is something new that God is giving birth to. And that, of course, begs the question, what is God giving birth to? Um, Jesus says they're going to hand you over to councils. You're going to be beaten in the synagogues as a testimony. Want to contrast that a little bit with the hero tales of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where you're thrown into the furnace, but you don't burn up. You're thrown into the lion's den, but you don't get eaten. But what Jesus says here in verse 12, brother will betray brother to death. Uh, he talks about people dying. And part of this is because the experience of the early church, the experience of Jesus himself, was that people were dying. People were dying for their faith. And part of what Mark is doing, part of what Jesus is doing, I think, is normalizing this experience and to say that this doesn't take away from the fact that kingdom is raging against kingdom, but that there is this larger kingdom of God that will one day be supreme. In verse 10, we're told that this must all happen until the good news is proclaimed to all the nations. Now, this is subtle, but I want you to notice that the good news is proclaimed to all the nations, meaning, to go back to Daniel, that God wishes to save Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and all the nations that took Israel into captivity, right? The shift is God, no, God does not want to defeat and conquer, but for the good news to be proclaimed to these nations and that Jesus's disciples have a role in helping this happen. Uh, and then finally, uh, verse 13, we're told, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Compare that to the final verse in the book of Daniel, Daniel 12, 12, which says, happy is the one who perseveres. That is the final line of the book of Daniel. And so essentially, whenever we look at Mark 1 through 13, you see a lot of threads and themes that are congruent with the book of Daniel, uh, but also some shifts. Uh, because the shift is no longer that God wishes to judge all the nations, but rather that the good news must be proclaimed to all the nations. Uh, and the hope of deliverance isn't so much that you're going to be thrown into the furnace and not burn up, that you're going to be thrown into the lion's den and not get eaten, but that you actually might lose your life. You actually might have to die. Uh, and the early church, this was like a normative message that they needed to hear but of course, if we keep reading the Gospel of Mark, congruent with the end of the book of Daniel, there's this hope of resurrection. So I'm going to go ahead and pause there and see what you think of the first few verses of Mark 13 and where you find some resonance with the book of Daniel. Um, one of the things that sat with me still is, is the possibly due to my current situation, but the uh, beginning of the birth pangs. Um, I think it's really wonderful. I think back, like um, just talking with my mom, probably either early marriage or whatever about having kids. And, you know, she described those kind of pain that it's the pain that is so great. You just can't imagine it, but you, you quickly forget it because on the other side is something much greater. And that's just beyond being worthwhile. And with that, it's like, okay, that makes a really good analogy for me. I think women would get that really well. I don't know if men 
do they understand as greatly um, what that really is? Because that in itself is a hugely hopeful message if you come from, well, for me, because I come from my experience. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. And I think, you know, one who has given birth will experience that verse differently than one who has not. I do love your image, though, of how uh, women often forget the pain, you know, after the new child comes into the world. And I think there's a lot of eschatological hope there, because I think part of what's being referenced is that if you think about all that's wrong with the world, all the injustice, all the pain, all the suffering, you know, I don't think it's true. If you've ever seen like Men in Black, where they have like the memory eraser machine, where I don't think that's what it's going to like look like whenever we, you know, uh, are fully in the kingdom of heaven. I don't think that God's going to erase all of our bad memories or anything like that. But I do think there's a biblical hope that would suggest that in light of what's going to be born, in light of what God is doing, um, that all the trauma, pain, and justice of the earthly experience will be seen in a sense, as birth pangs, as something that preceded uh, the big grand finale of history. And, and I think that's a really, really hopeful message. And, and I think it's worth holding um, if we can. Mm-hmm. Do the Jews still wish to rebuild the temple? Well, um, I cannot speak uh, for all. Uh, I imagine that there would be some, you know, um, like Christianity, modern day Judaism has many, many different facets, nuances, and uh, ways of seeing the world. And so uh, I imagine, though, that for those who are Orthodox, you know, pockets of Orthodox Jews, uh, that there would be a, um, among some um, a deep desire to rebuild the temple. Uh, however, uh, even amongst Orthodox Jews today, uh, a lot of the cultic practices associated with that temple uh, are no longer in operation in, in quite the same way. And so uh, I imagine that if there is that desire there, that it's a complicated desire um, because you can never fully go back to what life was like uh, in the year 1500 BC when Solomon was ruling over Israel, you know, so um, anyway, I, that's, that's my best shot at, at that. So one of the things that I'm, I'm present to is at the very beginning, you know, Jesus is kind of like a Debbie Downer. I mean, he and his disciples, uh, have been traveling and this is like the show they're in Jerusalem. This is the first time they go to Jerusalem and the 12 disciples, very simple fishermen and, and people have probably never seen the temple before have never made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they're like, oh my gosh, look at it. It's magnificent. It's beautiful. It's the centerpiece of our faith. Lord, look at it. And Jesus says, yeah, that's going to be knocked down. Oh, and on top of it, um, yeah, there's going to be more nations rising against more nations and you're going to be beaten and thrown into jail. And, you know, I mean, it's like bad news after bad news after bad news. But I'm wondering um, where, what Jesus is doing, kind of taking this metaphorically, like where you think that Jesus might be 
trying to help us to see things a little bit more clearly. You know, where is it that we get over invested in, in something that ultimately is going to get knocked down or pass away? This is a text for Advent, Advent one. Um, and it's part of that piece where Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So I'm just curious, where does that resonate with you? Where do you find yourself, you know, clinging to something that Jesus might need to say, hey, I'm glad you're excited about that, but it's probably not going to last too long and you might want to shift your hope elsewhere. Does that question make sense? Uh, I've been told that after 9-11, y'all saying uh, hymn 665, uh, all my hope on God is founded, that that's the hymn that Robbie wanted to sing. But there's that uh, that line. I think it's because of two things. One is all my hope is on God is founded, but there's also that line in the hymn that says um, tower and temple turn to dust. Uh, and so uh, I'm just that story was in the backdrop of the question. It just, uh, singing that hymn after 9-11 has etched its way into many people's memories because several people have told me about that. So just kind of an interesting thing to reflect on. I think there's just one temple. We hear that word used even, I think, in uh, Jewish tradition here now, but that's not really correct, right? So we need to differentiate between temple and synagogue. Right. There is one. There is one temple. The temple is in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the same as like the wilderness tent you read about in Exodus that they set up in the wilderness. I mean, uh, Solomon built the temple. David wanted to build the temple. Um, and there's that great line where. God says to David, uh, do you want to build me a house? No, I will build you a house. And of course, he's talking about the house of David, right? The lineage of people that would ultimately find its way to Jesus. But Solomon built the temple. Um, And the temple was very cultic in that it was a, a place. It was loud. There were animals. There were priests. There were sacrifices, Um, But the synagogue is more of like a local place um, and it's more associated with rabbinic Judaism and um, the non-sacrificial pieces of Torah. So you wouldn't really most likely bring animals to be sacrificed at the synagogue. It was a place where the Torah was read and studied and memorized, not necessarily the place where the bull was slaughtered. One temple, many synagogues. And after the destruction of the temple, the synagogue movement became the primary expression of Judaism and continues to be so today. Okay. Well, and then along those lines, if there's only one temple and if we are moving from or to the metaphor that we are the third temple, then that other temple will not be rebuilt. If, I mean, yeah. as you move from the metaphor to the literal. Yeah. And, and of course, it's a, it's a provocative question, and, and we always have to be really sensitive in terms of how we, we speak of such things. Um, but again, you know, two things happened in the temple. Sacrifices were offered, and it's the fullness of where God dwelled. And so when Jesus says something greater than the temple is here, he's referring to the ultimate sacrifice and where the fullness of God dwelt right? The fullness of God dwelt more in Jesus Christ, according to our belief, than in 
the physical temple. And so whenever we speak of us being the temple, it's an analogy that derives itself from Jesus being the ultimate temple where our life is to become what Paul calls a living sacrifice and that whenever people come to church, they experience the fullness of God. So we are playing around with analogies and metaphors, but I think uh, it's, a, it's a powerful one. Um, Jackie, I knew that you had your hand up a second ago. Yeah, I, for several decades, I've been grateful to have been born in the United States. That confers upon me some tremendous advantages that most people in the rest of the world don't experience. But I think the pandemic has accelerated my despair and and also the fact that I've been reading a lot of historical novels about the fall of the British Empire. And I've become acutely aware that nothing lasts. And I got really upset last night when we were talking about the Texas legislature passing laws that you can't discuss Social studies teachers can't discuss current events in their classroom uh, because uh, they're accused of indoctrinating their students. And I'm alarmed by the paths that our country seems to go down. I've, I've been aware forever, and certainly as an American history teacher, that we don't have a sterling record. But overall, I believed that we tried to, as a country, we tried to do right in the world. And, and I'm not sure I believe that anymore. I, I've been in despair over what I see as the crumbling of our democracy. Yeah. Well, a few comments about that, because I think it's relevant, Jackie, to um, this passage. Um, number one is I think you're not alone and some of the negative feelings, you know, I'm doing these podcasts and at the end I ask all these speakers the same questions and I've asked nine priests now, what are you less sure of, um, uh, after COVID, you know, or in the past 12 months than you were previously. And I want to say a good third have now given the answer that they are less sure that they see any way past our current polarized moment. Now, that's not to say there isn't a way forward. It's just to say that three out of nine priests, you know, have said something very similar to what you said when prompted with the question. Um, I, I do think in the book of Daniel um, that, I mean, Daniel is clear, like nation will rise against nation. Nation will come, nation will go. Nation will come, nation will go. And there's always uh, a temptation to believe that we are part of a nation that doesn't fall within that pattern. And I get that temptation because we don't want to, I mean, we don't want to embrace the vulnerability of thinking that uh, we're also part of the world of impermanence and change. Um, but the one place where I think, I don't want to challenge, but I want to kind of be curious uh, is, um, is there a place between um, naive optimism and despair? 
you know, is there something kind of in between, you know, so if the, the former is that we're really doing something special and we figured it out and everything's going to be good for a long time and, and despair is there's absolutely no hope. <laughs> it's all really, really bad. Uh, let's just all kind of eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, is there something in between? And I think the Christian must say yes. Because going back to Daniel, what I loved about him was on the one hand, he was utterly realistic. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And what did he say? He's like, well, Nebuchadnezzar, it basically means that your time's almost up. You're going to get conquered. Your kingdom's done. And Persia's coming in next. But on the other hand, he'd say, oh, king, live forever. How can I serve you? <laughs> you know, you're doing some good things, king. I'm really proud of you. I mean, because remember, Daniel, even though Daniel did not like Belteshazzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Daniel really liked Nebuchadnezzar and he worked for the good of that kingdom. And so if we can find like a middle ground, I think that's going to be an important space for Christians to occupy. Just a few thoughts, Mary. I'm thinking that I think, I feel like that the, the middle ground we are able to have as Christians because we've been given God's promise and God's grace um, in that from the hope that's there, despair is everything's gone. And I don't, I think, I think rather the middle is sometimes something doesn't go the way we want and we're disappointed. We're sad. We grieve. I mean, we can go into that, but I don't think it takes away the hope. I think the, you know, hope is that we believe that God is there and will always be there and, and everything's in God's hands. And so that, that to me is what allows me anyway, to, carry on. Mm, yeah. A deep confidence in the goodness and benevolence and sovereignty of God. Gail. I agree with Mary. I think it's all about hope and that, that hope isn't founded. I mean, all our hope is founded with God is that, as we were saying in, in the, in the hymn and um, in the power of, of God. So we're, but you can, we have that optimism and we have that despair, but that's where we can't live and wallow in either one of those. I mean, one will overtake the other at different times in our life, but we believe in the, in the hope of God and, the, and Jesus coming again, our savior. Yeah. And I think we always have to make a distinction between hope and optimism. And to be really clear, there is nothing wrong with optimism. I mean, optimism is fine uh, if it's well-grounded. It's just that optimism is not a theological virtue. It's not the fruit of the spirit. Hope is a theological virtue. So hope is a conviction that all will be well, even when everything around us is falling apart, because we believe in a God who is sovereign and knows how to put things back together and raise the dead optimism is a belief that things will get better on the outside, right? And so sometimes our optimism is really well-grounded, you know, like mm -hmm. if Jackie has the common cold and I go visit with Jackie and I'm like, hey, Jackie, I'm sorry you have the cold. And Jackie says, oh, it's awful. I'm dying. I'm going to get my affairs in order. I'd be like, Jackie, you need to be more optimistic. It's a common cold, like 99.9% people recover, right? That there's a reason for Jackie to be optimistic. Um, but if we have an optimism at the height of a pandemic that we can all go to a concert without a mask and, you know, not spread the virus, that's a false optimism. So 
nothing wrong with optimism. The question is, is it well appropriated to the moment? But hope is always appropriate. So now I'll read the second half of Mark 13, starting with verse 14. But when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Someone on the house must not go down or enter the house to take anything away. Someone in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not be in winter. For in those days there will be suffering, such as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and no, never will be again. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here is the Messiah, look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs, false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be alert, I've told you everything already. But in those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the year to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be aware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at cockcrow, or at midnight, or at dawn or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. All right, just a few thoughts and we're gonna go into some conversation. Um, first, uh, verse 14, when Mark says, let the reader understand, uh, just a little reminder that Mark's audience were all Gentiles. They weren't fully familiar with Jewish customs. And so when Mark says in verse 14, when you see the desolating sacrilege set up, he is referencing Daniel chapter 12, which talks about the abomination that desolates being set up. This is most likely referring to something idolatrous and pagan being set inside the Jewish temple by the Romans uh, in order to uh, punish the Jews and to establish dominance over them. Uh, but Jesus really basically says, you know, some days of suffering are coming. And, and when people say, look, here's the Messiah, look, here he is, to not believe it, that false messiahs and false prophets will appear, that they'll produce signs and omens. And I just think that's important to know whenever you see people speaking on Jesus's behalf who do not represent Jesus's values, or whenever they claim to know the exact date of the end of the world, or whenever they're very, very confident about who's going to be judged and who's not, um, you know, just don't be surprised. Jesus has told us this will happen. 
People will speak in my name, but they will not speak for me. And of course, we can all find examples, I'm sure, of people we might say are false messiahs, false prophets who are leading people astray. But then the real interesting thing is Jesus says that after the suffering, um, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. And of course, Jesus is now equating himself with the Son of Man, talked about in Daniel chapter 7, who along with the Ancient One was given a throne. And so in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been referred to as the Son of Man. And now he is associating himself with this apocalyptic son of man in the book of Daniel. That is a very strong statement uh, and basically has Jesus self-identify with this messianic figure who is given a throne alongside the ancient one referenced in the book of Daniel. There's that great verse in verse 31 about how heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so in the midst of Jesus talking about all these kingdoms and all these temples and all these things that are going to pass away, um, we are reminded that his word will not pass away, meaning there is something that is stable. There is something that is reliable. There is something we can count on. Uh, We can count on Jesus's word being firm and Jesus's word being sure. And then one other note just to mention is that If you didn't catch it, uh, our work is to stay awake. Verse 35, keep awake. You don't know when the master's coming. How does this chapter end? What I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. And I think that that is the reason this is a text typically read with uh, Advent 1, a season that invites us to ask the question, what does it mean for us to be alert, to pay attention, to stay awake? And then, of course, the other side of that question, how is it that we tend to put ourselves to sleep? How is it that we find ourselves distracted by something that is going to make us drowsy and take us away from the real work God's given us to do? Um, One other final note about Mark 13 that I think is worth mentioning because it's probably going to come up. uh, And that's the question of what exactly is Jesus talking about? And I think one of the things that makes this chapter a little bit tricky is that Jesus is talking about a lot of things at once. And so historically speaking, Mark 13 is associated with the destruction of the Jewish temple. A lot of people place the gospel of Mark being written around the year 66 AD or maybe a year or two after that, which is just a year or two before the temple was destroyed. And of course, Jesus would be speaking these words in the year 27 to 30 AD. Um, And so historically speaking, the great suffering being referenced, you know, um, this generation will not pass until these things have taken place, could refer to the destruction of the Jewish temple, which was a, a world-changing, earth-shattering event. And it really changed the whole landscape of both the early church and Judaism of that time. But on the other hand, there is a sense in which the second coming is also being referenced. You know, the angels will come and gather the elect from the four winds. There's something more cosmic and sweeping than the destruction of a temple being referenced. And so one of the things that's just tricky about Mark 13 
is that we have to read it on a lot of different levels all at once. Not to mention we need to read it in its context of what was happening historically with the church, but also to ask the question, what does it mean for us? You know, what does it mean for us now to stay awake? What does it mean for us now to know that heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus's words will not pass away? And so I'll go ahead and just stop there and we'll see um, what resonates with you or what questions you have about the second half of Mark 13. Well, in, in verse 32, when neither the angels in heaven nor the son but uh, will know, but only the father, it's just one of those verses that always makes me think about the nature of the Trinity and who knows what and who does what. And back in Luke or Matthew or maybe both when um, I think there's a verse that uh, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature with God. Um, and of course, wisdom, I think of the Holy Spirit, but that does make me, you know, gives me pause to think about the nature that there's a lot of humanity going on there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great thing. One little side note on that. If it's, if it's interesting, since you brought it up, um, a tricky question. Um, I, I don't think that it would ever be good to read Mark 13, 32, and to use that to talk about the Trinity. Um, it, it, it does raise questions, though, about the nature of Jesus Christ being fully human, fully divine, and what he knew, what he didn't, you know, because it's very clear that Jesus uh, had some course of human development where he studied the Torah, where he prayed, where he discerned God's will, where he relied on a word from the spirit in the same way that you and I do. And it's also clear that he was very different, that he walked on water, that he could read people's thoughts, that he could turn water into wine and, you know, two fish and five loaves of bread into a feast. And so how we kind of hold all that together is, is very mysterious um, but for those who are interested in making sure their Trinitarian theology is super orthodox, it is important to note that there's a little bit of problematic language with the three persons of the Trinity in terms of how we moderns understand the nature of being a person, because a, a person is a center of consciousness, and it is not orthodox to say that there are three separate centers of consciousness within the Godhead. You know, that, you know, we often think of the Trinity as like a big happy family that just gets along a lot better where they're all sharing ideas and coming up with an action plan. But that's not quite orthodox that uh, even though I affirm the three persons, uh, how we understand a person in modern terms is like three separate entities. And uh, so within the imminent Trinity, which is the theological word for the inside the essence of the Trinity itself, there would be no gaps in knowledge amongst the persons. But within Jesus's experience as an incarnate human being, there might have been or would have been. Thank you. I guess I can skip church now in two weeks. Um, no, you may not. Um, <laughs> You may, most certainly may not, not on Trinity Sunday. <laughs> Mary? Um, one thing coming back, and it's, it's uh, I'm on a two edge right now, but when the idea of um, 
Jesus will pass away, but his word will not, or Jesus says, I will pass away, but my word will not. Could that be, I feel like it's too simplistic, but all of a sudden I'm thinking it's almost like his humanity, his body is going to pass, but his divinity is not. That is going to be with us always as in word. And what we know of the word being the alpha, the omega and getting into that. Yeah. So the, the, the verse you're looking at, Mary, is 31, where it says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Yeah. One thing I'll just say in general about systematic theology is that it's impossible <laughs> uh, and that the best systematic theologians, they know when they need to stop talking because they're on the verge of committing a heresy. So the early church was very good at basically saying, that's a heresy, that's a heresy, that's a heresy, that's a heresy, that's a heresy. And so the task of systematic theologians is to say all they can about God, but to you know, know when they're about to commit a heresy and then to stop talking. So uh, in the spirit of that, I'm not gonna comment too much on what you said. Uh, out of fear of being heretical, but I get it. I, I get, I, I love the reflection, you know, I think it's I, I'd say that was my fear of how to state it. <laughs> that, that's right. So what about this idea of staying awake? How do you know if you're staying awake and what is it that puts you to sleep? You know, because the passage begins with, Hey, master, look at the temple. Look how great it is. Look at the cathedral. Look at this, look at that. And Jesus says, Focus too much on that. You're going to be asleep. You're not going to be okay whenever it gets knocked down. So um, how is it that we put ourselves to, to sleep today? Kay? Um, this is just an analogy I had a while ago. And that is often we get a word from God, and it really is a word from God relevant to our current situation. And then we turn off the receiver and we think that that one word we received at one point applies to everything and everybody in all times and all situations. And I think that maybe kind of what he's talking about here is that you just don't ever turn off your receiver. You keep it always attuned because situations change God's word to me in any given moment may be different from what it was yesterday and so it's just that awareness that just because you heard it once doesn't mean it works all the time you know Kay I really appreciate that comment that's that's really deep um that that's really really deep because I think about something simple like you know Jesus healing on the Sabbath um I have no doubt right that that God spoke very clearly to people that at a very particular time of like, this is what it means to honor the Sabbath. This is what you need to do. Um, um, but Jesus kept listening and he said, actually right now uh, it's time to heal on the Sabbath. And, and there was some friction there. Um, I have no doubt that there was a time, I don't understand what it was like to be a nomad and you know, 1300 BCE. But if you read the laws of Leviticus, I have no doubt that there was a time when that was probably like the most holy, best, sane way to live under the circumstances. But that doesn't mean you can just like translate it and drop it into 21st century America. Because part of what I think you're saying is that God is not 
up in the sky giving a static law to be obeyed, but rather is in a dynamic relationship with us where we always have to be listening. We always have to be adapting because that's the nature of relationship and that's the nature of God. Yeah. Um, Diane? Mute here. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. So I was just thinking, and it's sort of similar, I think, to what Kay said, that we can stay awake by our having a daily relationship with God through our prayers, Mm -hmm. through our reading scriptures, through studying the Bible, you know, discussing scripture as we do in our Bible studies, that to me, that that might be a way of staying awake. And and sleeping is, you know, really getting caught up in the world and the culture of America and and all of that, and which kind of pulls us away from God. So I guess keeping our focus on God and what we learn in the scriptures. But That's I really, really liked what Kay said and how she said it, you know, being attuned to hear what God has to say to us. And I think yeah. we can do that through daily prayer. And That's great. discussion of, of scripture with others. Really well said, Diane. Mary? I think, too, um, falling asleep uh, in terms of that is getting distracted. And I think that that's a lot of what's around us. But um, I think along with Kay's thing, uh, being attuned and turning the radars on and off along those lines, sometimes it's, it, we just need to go and listen for God and look for God. I think we just get going or forget to do that. So being intentional to find him, not to know what we're finding, but to be there and be aware. Thank you, Barbara. Um, for me, that idea of being asleep is what, you know, Mary was saying, it's being, you know, distracted. And so, you know, it's television or, you know, reading, you know, too much television, too much fiction, too much anything. And um, I just finished a, a book um, by Michael Curry, God is Love. And at the very end of it, he has an appendix, um, you know, and he talks about how to put this into action. And, um, and I usually look at that stuff and go, yeah, right, and toss it back on the shelf. Um, you know, that's as far as it goes. And this time, I, I just, something got into me and I just sat down and I created what I think it was Brit, I think you called it a vision quest when I showed it to, or vision, vision, not quest, kind of a vision map. And it had like three qualities that I really admire in other people, you know, like listening and patience and kindness. And then I had six areas of my life about how, what needs, you know, where do I need to invest more um, in order to, sort of live out those values. And so it's what it has been for me is, you know, if you think of, you know, if I think of my life as, you know, being a hundred percent of something and that it's been 70% distraction and maybe 30% consciousness, if I'm being generous, that what this effort is doing is kind of drift, you know, forcing me more into, you know, like maybe 40% watchfulness. Um, 
and only 60% of those distractions because I'm choosing to do certain things um, that are aligned with being awake. Yeah, I appreciate it. There's a lot of a word that, you know, I would say sums up a lot of what you said was just a lot of intentionality. There's mm-hmm. a lot of intentionality and in, in what you just articulated. So I really, really appreciate that. Well, I appreciate all those great reflections. And I'm, I'm mindful that we're kind of nearing the end of our time. Two things I, I want to make sure we don't miss about this reading um, is that you know, behind all the apocalyptic imagery, all the promises of you're going to suffer, this is going to be bad, there's going to be horrible moments. uh, It really is meant to be held in an overwhelmingly hopeful setting. Uh, It's not a chapter of despair. Uh, It can read that way uh, if you get caught in all the moon turning to blood and all that stuff. But the the two things that I I would have you kind of walk away with today, one is that line that echoes the book of Daniel that says he who or she, he or she, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And, um, you know, so often, you know, we ask, you know, what does God want from us? What, what is it? And just the very act of enduring, of continuing to show up, of not leaving, of staying at the table, you know, so often we think we have to do something heroic. We have to do something big. We have to do something great. We're not doing enough. And, And I think the message of Mark 13 is that in a sense, if you're still here, if you are enduring in the faith, if you're not going to throw in the towel and quit, if you're going to keep wrestling with these hard problems, if you're going to keep leaning into the difficulty of Christian community, if you're going to just stay at the table, um, that is more than enough, right? Because I'm very mindful that in today's world that um, many people don't stick with anything, uh, our attention span is short. Uh, the cultural values have changed. Um, we get distracted. Um, if things cease to feel good, we quit and find something else that feels good. I mean, right, that's kind of like a hallmark of uh, at least one side of the immature aspect of our culture. People don't stick with stuff. And so the one who sticks with, the, you know, just it is enough to endure, to stick with this, uh, whether you feel feeling it or not he who endures to the end will be saved. So I don't want you to, to downplay the importance of just sticking with it. That's a big deal in Christianity. Uh, and there's other biblical verses we could use to support that. The other is um, heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away. And both of those are true. Everything in your life, you know, look around at your apartment. I mean, everything is going to, it's going to pass away. Um And that's the bad side of the equation. And that would be really, really bad news if Jesus's word weren't firm and secure. But the word that will not pass away is the promise of resurrection. It's I am with you always to the end of the age. And so in advance, Jesus has told us whether it's a car you like, whether it's a temple, whether it's uh, whatever it is we're all going to see it go or we're going to go and leave it behind. But the reason that's not bad news is because of Jesus's word, which is stable, which is about resurrection. And it's about the presence of God bringing good uh, out of chaos and disorder. And so um, my hope is that you can feel some hope in those two verses as you go throughout um, your week. So just a, just a note to end on.